Hello, welcome to the Enjoy Holistic video podcast series. Today we have David McCready. Um, today we're going to talk about the book Real Alien Worlds, which is a, um, a very comprehensive encyclopedia um, connecting with beings from other worlds. So David, we had a chat on uh, email and we were trying to work out what we wanted to discuss today on the show. We wanted to cover something positive and you mentioned we should talk about life beyond the earth plane and the considerable help that we get from other beings on other worlds. And, yeah. uh, and you also misspell the earth as well. So I think uh, it'd be good to, uh, to learn about why you do that and, uh, and to go into some of these concepts you have from the encyclopedia. Well, let's start on how to ch why change the spelling of earth. Because we are experiencing a world right now that we believe to be very real. This is our primary uh, reality. Mm. Most people don't really perceive anything else, and therefore it becomes the entirety of what you're up to. Now, if you get into things like astral projection, you can start to leave this reality, and you see how this reality is being created, and you can find those wonderful, fluffy-looking spirit beings out there. And if you keep on traveling, you can also then land in other worlds that look like solid realities like this one. And if you bump into a more advanced world, they'll normally keep reminding you that all these apparent solid realities are in fact illusions. They're generated illusions. So when it changed the spelling of Earth subtly and calling it the Earth plane, it's there to try and jar you or like nudge you and remind you that you're just experiencing an illusion that you're choosing to be in. And whatever reason you wanted to be here. I mean, have you any recollection at the moment of why you even want to be on this earthly level or has it all been washed away? <laughs> it's, I guess it's all been washed away, but um, I guess I've had that inner thing that is a journey of sorts, isn't it, to grow. I think as you awaken or become more aware, you, you get that knowledge that you, you're here to grow, aren't you? It's not just some random thing that's happening. Yes. So, yeah, so you get a sort of latent memory that you're here to grow. Uh, and a lot of people realise they've had previous lifetimes. Mm. But how many people do you meet who say they'd like to visit the Earth again and plenty of times? Not many. I think most people would say, this is my lifetime, I'm not coming back. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, so let's figure out on that one. It's such a weird and wacky place that as soon as you begin to wake up on it, uh, our first reaction is hope, to hope never have to do it again. That's a, that was a life's objective. I don't want to come here again. It's a horrible mistake. It's been dreadful. Oh, <laughs> it is. So let's get some context. So I'm really intrigued about this, this book that you've put together. You, you, you enlisted a team of researchers as well to help you with it. So um, what, how did it come about, this project, and how long did it take you to put this? It's a huge project, a huge book together with a lot of detailed information. How did that work? Well, here's what was happening. Um, back around... 2013, thereabouts, I was working on uh, 
the book of the Great Simulator, Part Three. Uh, and I noticed around that time there were some beings uh, who looked like not only were they guiding spirits, uh, but they were manifesting physical lives on other planets. And I'll just explain that concept. We often have guides helping us, and we see them as fluffy things or angel beings. But now and again, you realize, actually, not only are they helping you uh, in this lifetime, but they themselves have manifested bodies and having lifetimes on other worlds that look physical, a bit like the one we're on, or the illusion of a physical world anyway. So they're all illusory. And at that point, I thought it'd just be a good idea to do a quick bit of research into what some of these other worlds look like, because it just seemed like the right thing to do. And the issue was flowing, do that. So I stopped writing the great uh, simulator uh, part three at that moment, had a quick look into other worlds. And what happened next was it became such a pull that I got sucked into a two-year project to actually write all about them. Uh, not And what we did is not every other world out there in the universe, but it's a snapshot of what you can find. And it's enough of a snapshot to help you realize there are many, many places you can go and visit. And it's a much bigger picture than you realize. And that snapshot is there to wake you up. And having done that uh, two-year project, uh, I then came back with so much more awareness and information on what was really going on, that I realized I had to rewrite the whole of the Great Simulator Part 3 in order to get all the new information into it. Uh, so it was one little hassle course as another that way. So what was the process? What was the typical process of you researching? You talk about heavy astral projection and light astral projection. Did you start off with one method and then progress to another um, did other people that you enlisted also do a similar approach to yourself well uh, we have the option to do heavy projection and light projection but heavy projection you often end up doing on your own uh, unless you're uh, sitting with someone who's really, really skilled at it, and you can manage to get your heavy projections working at the same time. And just if anyone doesn't understand the difference, uh, if you're doing a very heavy astral projection, that's when you're taking most of your spirit being, so your spirit being, and say in the case of sort of Ian or David, would look like Ian or David. And if you project it out, you tend to project out in whatever clothes you happen to be wearing at the time. That's a general tendency. And you'll go around places that look like earthly worlds. And that's a sort of heavy, what we call low-level projection. Uh, when you go higher, you have to let go of a lot of your earthly form. So we'd have to let go of Ian and David, just like leave them behind. And then you turn into much lighter, fluffy light being. And when people see these, it isn't like sort of static orb. It's often like lots of energies sort of twisting and turning and moving. And when you go into a light projection state, you can leave behind the earthly world. And then if you want, you can land somewhere else. And the clever trick is if you can find some friends on another world who are happy to let you come and visit, you can stream down into their bodies and their little sphere 
and experience being them and what it's like to be on their world. So to do the research on this, we get people working at the same time, doing a form of light astral projection where you can sit in the same room or you could do it uh, over the internet, even right now via Zoom, and you get your consciousness up and out, and then you land it somewhere else. And when two people land somewhere else and we can still have a conversation at the same time, you can start comparing notes and saying, I see this, what else have you seen that? And if you do it well, you'll find when two beings are doing this, they get an extremely similar impression, but they'll also each spot some things the other one hasn't spotted. And by doing multiple experiments, by taking lots of people to see similar worlds, you manage to get multiple viewpoints. And then you build up a really good picture of what it's like. And you know for sure that one person hasn't imagined it in their own head because like a dozen other people can see it too if you just show them the location. They can all find it. Does that make a nice sense? <laughs> yeah, and do you, do you sort of start off with a common target in, in a similar way that remote viewing works, in a sense that you have like a target and then you, uh, you, you, you sort of target that location uh, to get similar results? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it does help if you're all going to the same place. Yeah. You know, otherwise, we like going to an airport and people going <laughs> different directions, <laughs> flying off yeah. to different countries. So, or, mm. you'd, uh, you know, you've got to... You've got to be on, on the same target to do it, but it's great fun to do that. And how you discover the target or how this was done was, it was a bit like one group of beings who can manifest on one world kicked the whole show off uh, and then started saying, well, why don't you go here? And here's another world. And it was literally like being handed on from one place to another. I'd give you an analogy. Supposing you went off on a cycling holiday and you were staying at a random bed and breakfast to begin with. You just stop at the first bed and breakfast. And then in the morning, you ask the owner, where else should I go? And the owner would direct you to another bed and breakfast uh, further down the road. And by this means, you got directed by a, to a whole network of different places. And that's how the process was done. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense because obviously you wouldn't know something existed um, yeah. unless you knew it existed. <laughs> so you obviously need guidance from another being. And and do you find that these beings have a connection with you already on some level, or these are new beings that you've befriended? Well, this uh, comes back soon enough to the whole thing of. Uh, people who say one lifetime on earth is enough for me and whether or not that ultimately turns out to be the case. As you're going around on this tour, uh, you begin to realize you have quite a lot of friends uh, on other worlds. And sometimes even when you don't have a lot of personal friends on other worlds, it feels like the person you're traveling with at that moment has a lot of friends on other worlds. So when we talked about the research for doing this, supposing uh, two humans are going off doing this. Well, if one of them has a bunch of mates on another world, they will literally invite you over to their house and you get to see how uh, your friend in a human sense has a bunch of friends on another world and you 
quite literally get to visit their house and meet their friends and family. So you get to pass around. So between the network of friends, there's a huge number of places that can be visited and you get invites to. It's a wonderful system. <laughs> That's amazing. So many people would say that um, the earth plane always seems to be um, a realm where we need a lot of assistance. You know, we're in this kind well, of deep amnesia, aren't we here, it seems. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. one of the things you talk about in the book is that um, humans seem to have this astral apathy where they, or they, they, what they fantasize about wanting to do astral projection but not actually put the work into it. And it takes a lot of effort to become proactive and do it. Um, why is that, do you think? Well, can I just break it up to the... the, the we'll get to that one in a moment, but we'll go back to the uh, earlier point of just mm. around having friends on other worlds and they need to provide you with a lot of assistance. Let's realize this. So supposing on a world there's a bunch of mates and one of them is reading the equivalent or picking up the equivalent of a brochure that says, would you like to visit Earth? Go and live on Earth. Have a lifetime on Earth. It's all arranged. The tour guides are waiting to take you there. And it's not like a system where you'd have to shell out money for this. It's more like uh, people who run the Earth say, we'd like some interesting visitors. We'll help you come and visit. Please come along. So... If you want to go and visit Earth, you can go and visit Earth. And on the other world where you're living, all your mates laugh at you. And they say, you'll get totally lost there. It's a bonkers place. Everyone who tries it gets completely messed around. And being a smart character, you realize that your mates are going to have to help you when you show up. So it's a group effort. You're going to go to Earth. You're going to live out a lifetime. You're going to get born into that world. And then your mates have to come and assist you whilst you're actually living out that lifetime. And just to put in another point when I'm saying that, uh, I say at the beginning, a lot of people have forgotten that they want to be here. So when they here, they're just complaining about it and saying, on balance, they probably don't want to do it again. Well, realize this. Until you start realizing what made you want to come here in the first place, you've no idea whether you want to do one trip or a lifetime, say, 100 different journeys, and here's just part of one of a series. You do need to snap out of this world to see the reality of what you're up to. So hopefully that answers the first part of the question. <laughs> Is there a danger, though, of being trapped in some kind of cycle, though, if you completely forget who you are um, and you, you let your emotions go the wrong way? Because some people suffer mental illness, don't they, when they're here? You know, not everyone's minds are crystal clear. And depending on what their experience is, they can really spiral down. Um, is, there, is, there a, is there always that risk that a higher being could end up just spiraling down and taking many eons of time before they're wrench back out into where they where they came from well definitely we, we know yeah. there's the risk yeah uh, but let's look at well, how it even crops up uh, if you're going to have a being on earth that's going to be aware of energies outside of it you have to remove some of its firewalls or protection mechanisms 
So a lot of people walking around on Earth are programmed or mentally programmed to have very little interest in astral projections, spiritual things, etc. They just want to be busy on the hamster wheel of life. And for people like that, they live in a nice little safe box, a bit like a snail in its shell, and they're hunkered up inside and they're nicely protected. But if you want to... Uh, be more exploring and do stuff, you need to be able to get out there and be sensitive to what's going on. So you have to enable the sensitivities, which can be destabilizing. And it turns out uh, the best sensitivities leave you living on a knife edge between genius or insanity. And perhaps there might be some little wanderings into both ones between one and the other. But it's a question of can you manage the extra sensitivity? So if you're going to run with the sensitivity, it's learning how to cope with it. Uh, what happens if you get completely trapped and you just get locked up in a lunatic asylum and filled through a filled with mind-numbing drugs? Well, you'll probably die later on. Look back at what you've done and go, ah, oh, crap. Can I do that again? I think I can manage it better the next time. <laughs> uh, and that's what, if you read reincarnation books, people seem to do that, don't they? They seem to come back and do a very similar life again. And you think, oh, really? <laughs> 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 oh, incredible. I mean, like, if we covered the, the questions we said before, so... No, no, you haven't. No. no. <laughs> uh, you, were, uh, you were also asking uh, about this whole thing of why we sometimes don't want to be going uh, astrally projecting and doing mm. this other stuff. And there's really just two reasons to pick up here. There are many little bits, but if we can focus on two big ones, it'll explain a lot. Now, the first uh, one that's quite obvious, and that is, if you do a lot of out-of-body uh, astral uh, projection stuff and you spend your entire day doing that, it can make you kind of dysfunctional at the Earth level. <laughs> yeah, the, we have come here to experience the Earth level. So if you spend your whole day gone and somewhere else, then what was the point in being here at all? So... It, there is a requirement to live out some sort of earthly existence because you've come to do that. It's self-evident you've come to do that. So that'll try and keep you present. Mm. And then let's get on to the sort of uh, second reason as to why uh, you're not astrally projecting all day. And that is uh, when you compare the Earth to some other worlds, you'll find there's some really advanced worlds, and I'm sure we can talk about there's a bit more about what life is like on them, but there's some really advanced world. And the Earth's world uh, is a, a comparatively less advanced, but comparatively lower dimension world, whatever that turns out to mean. But it seems to be a relatively low dimension world where it's tricky to do stuff. It's like going on this extreme adventure holiday we were suggesting earlier, where all your mates think you're probably a bit bonkers and they're going to have to help you out and literally be on the phone to you trying to talk you out of the insanity you'll experience on Earth. So you go on this extreme, low-dimension adventure, and it takes a lot of energy to get here. It's a big push to reach it. You know, bizarrely, for all the moaning we do about not wanting to be here, it, you'll actually find that 
there's a lot of energy required to even reach this place. It's a bit like someone who's going free diving. That's where you dive into the water to see how far you can get without the use of an aqualong or something like that. You literally just plummet to the bottom of uh, an ocean uh, and that's what you're going to live. So it takes a lot of energy to do it. And having put all the energy into getting here and really wanting to be on Earth, it can then be tricky to snap out of it. I mean, how do you find it? What's it like trying to snap out of this low state? It's hard. It's, it's very, very hard. It's, I'd say that, you know, when you're in a sleep, if you like, if we call that word, it's not a very nice word, but, you know, ignorance is bliss, you're going through life, you believe this is it. But then when you, you kind of do the research and you obviously you have your own experiences of leaving the body and you realise there's more, um, life becomes a bit of a knife edge between um, being awake and then falling asleep again. And then you wake up again. And I don't know how many people are able to stay completely awake, but sometimes I dip in and out more often than not. Yes. About yourself. Yeah. Is that true for you or are you completely awake? <laughs> no, I, I, yeah. I will fall asleep as, as much as anyone else uh, can. And I don't wish that I, whilst you might see a bright and energetically connected David uh, here on screen, uh, I don't like to say it's like that every minute. And um, what I do like to say is we're on an experience where we're going to go up and we're going to go down and we go up and we go down. And in those transitions, it generates large amounts of contrast. And the more we can make use of that up-down contrasts that we get, the more valuable it's going to be. You don't have to stay in one state or the other. In fact, it's probably counterproductive for what we're up to, to try and stay, oh, I'm so high and light and I'll live in a cave and avoid everyone who's annoying me. Uh, or the other version is, oh, I don't care about anything. I'm just going to be down on my low level and bunkered down existence and who cares about it? I'll be dead soon anyway and it'll all be over. So probably either of those two extremes is not what we're up to. <laughs> So again, it's a bit like the, the the type rope being in the middle, isn't it? Trying to have that happy, the middle path, if you like, in the middle. Of, if, I didn't say that. No, no, no. no. <laughs> well, you're saying just kind of in, up and down, up and down. Yeah, let's. Yeah. let's Which is kind of what speak. happens anyway. That's. Yes. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. We're not trying to hold a, a mm. perfect state in the middle. Well, uh, mm. we're more like stunt aeroplanes than boring passenger aeroplanes. And just mm. to elaborate what I mean, you know, we could be passengers on an aircraft being taken from A to B, maybe on an EasyJet Ryanair or something. They'll squash you on and you're just carried along. By comparison, uh, we're more like fighter jets or stunt aeroplanes that can do all kinds of fun maneuvers. And isn't it much more fun to fly that way with ups and downs and barrel rolls mm. and seeing the world from a different perspective? Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And obviously the, the, the higher part of ourselves coming to experience that too, right? So, so what worlds have you visited? I mean, I've, I've got some notes down here. You've seen sort of humans, a different version of humans or humans mm. 2.0, future humans. Well, I mean, what's a, a great experience to share with our listeners? Well, let's just um, mention something now about other humans or not other humans. Let's talk a little bit about the some of the different species types you can find. Um, it does seem to be that the form of human we're in 
is quite a common design. It's rather like this. On any world, you can uh, inject some DNA organisms into them, a bit like bacteria. And if you give them a bit of a gentle nudge, you can start to grow a basic bacteria into pretty much any life form, like plants, like humans. And, and as a consequence, humans can be grown literally anywhere in the universe. You just find a nice yeah. green world, create a nice world, and you can grow some humans on them, and you can nudge them into different forms. And it turns out human bodies, as we see them, can be replicated on many different worlds. So even though they've been grown afresh and have some slight variations, they will look largely similar. And then another species group that's very common are the gray type aliens. You know, the ones who look largely sort of rounded things and the big eyes rather like on the front cover of the book we put together there. We took a typical gray type aliens, but they come in different shapes and sizes. And that's because they too have been grown on different worlds and they turn out to be a very convenient body form. So most of the gray aliens are based on something that we would consider to be uh, like an insect. As I say, on Earth, if the insects had turned into the dominant species, then you'd end up with things that often look like the gray aliens. And by comparison, we're the mammalian uh, people. And the lovely thing that confirmed this during uh, the research of the Real Alien uh, World's book uh, was I was noticing most of these sort of gray shapes were insects. And insects have exoskeletons. In other words, they're hard on the outside and soft on the inside, whereas we have internal skeletons. So we've got all the hard bits on the inside and we have the soft fleshy stuff on the outside. And there was one guy who'd had a close encounter and he described how he went to grab an alien's limb one day, put his hands around it, and he said it was really hard. It said it was like grabbing a lump of iron. And I thought, oh, that's beautiful, because he'd got to physically grab someone. I have not yet physically grabbed uh, a Gray's alien's body yet. I've asked visited enough of them, but I haven't physically grabbed one of their bodies. And this is a guy who had grabbed one of their bodies, and it confirmed what had been seen and being shown that they were, for the most part, exoskeletal beings. <laughs> so I imagine so, that that body type must be better for some particular thing. You know, maybe yeah. maybe traveling through the cosmos probably are better yeah. than the human. Yeah. We're quite a fragile uh, body type, I guess. Yeah. And his uh, next observation was about the human body. The human bodies who are in were designed for operation in higher dimensions. I'll give you a, an analogy. Uh, human beings uh, would have grown up a bit like uh, chimpanzees, that's our nearest relatives, in Africa. But we know human beings have made it all the way to the North Pole and the South Pole, a place that if you just took a chimpanzee, a chimpanzee on its own would die. A human, by comparison, has learned how to make nice warm clothing. And even though we share most of the same DNA as a chimpanzee, we've learned enough technological tricks to keep ourselves alive at the North Pole or the South Pole. So a chimpanzee, relatively naked, slightly fairy skin, hunter-gatherer lifestyle, can't live there, but we can because we've advanced our technology. 
So human bodies in this situation, they were designed for actually higher vibration worlds, and now we're operating them in a very low dimension environment, and we do find them a little bit malfunctional. Uh, they break down in strange ways. Uh, we find their emotions tricky to cope with, and they do operate sort of a bit peculiarly, but we're running the experiment of how on earth do you get them to function well? How do you repeat the functionality of a higher dimension world in a lower dimension world? I mean, how do you find operating the human form urine? What's it like in there? Well, it's heavy. It's, it's just a heavy <laughs> thing. It, it goes wrong. <laughs> um, it's not, the back isn't great. Um, we obviously... The, we get burnt from the sun. So we're not even very good with our own sun, are we? I mean, that, that would prove in some respects that we're not maybe not native to this earth plane. I mean, why would we be on a planet where the earth, the sun burns us? Uh, Is that well, a it, question it, entirely? To be fair, it does yeah. burn all mammalian mm. uh, things, but that would be more to, down to how you're managing your body. If you spent enough time out in the sun, you'd be all right. Uh, but what's happening to us is we're often locked up indoors and then we're so desiring of connection with the sun and all the lovely energy that it brings to us, uh, we don't know when to stop. <laughs> we can't literally feel when our body's had enough of that energy and get back in the shade. So we're not managing it so well. So it's, it's, again, it's a management issue, particularly <laughs> with these white-skinned beings, as you're, as you're describing here. So, so, what, so what's these higher worlds where the, the humans, are, they, are these consensus realities that are similar to the earth or are they sort of non-form spiritual dimensions or are they kind of like more higher vibrational physical dimensions? Much better to describe it as you'll find all of the above. <laughs> right. <laughs> when you say there's not like one, it's like you'll find they're all being experimented yeah. with. <laughs> they are all being tried out. <laughs> so what, what can humans do in a, in a high vibrational state that we, we can't do here? Uh, well, there's one obvious difference, and that is when we're in a higher vibration state, we manage our worlds better. Mm. And here's what goes on. Mm. On Earth... Uh, we're always trying to find out how to interact with each other. And we notice the humans on Earth are often doing their own things. So before this meeting, for example, we were joking about the dynamic of how you could bring in a potential employee to help with your workload, bring in an assistant. And then as soon as they've got any good at their job, they take all they've learned and they leave and go somewhere else and become your competitor uh, <laughs> rather than working in teamwork with you. And for that reason, then we think, well, I won't bring on an employee. I'll do everything myself and overload yourself because of poor human interaction. And what the humans have trouble doing here is creating a, a group consciousness where they're all working on the same scheme. They can do it to some extent, but they're not very good at it. Uh, and that's because they haven't seen how it's done on alien worlds where this has already been solved. So humans on alien worlds or greys or other life forms for that matter have already figured out the mechanism. And that's to have what you might call a kind of sub-god, which is a interaction between a bit of group human consciousness and 
more of the heavenly energy of what you really are and having a good mix of the two so that in the morning you'd get up, you check in on the sub-god energy and that sub-god energy helps remind you where you are and what you're up to and then helps inspire you with creative ways of living out your day. So if you were doing farming and making food for everyone, you'd wake up in the morning, want to do more farming and, and growing some really lovely crops to help feed everyone. If by comparison, you're an IT person, you'd wake up in the morning with an inspired energy. How are you going to take the IT projects to produce better interconnectivity up and working? And when you have a sub-god energy and people plug into it, they really want to do their jobs during the day. And you suddenly find a society where there's an abundance of everything you need and no one needs to be paid to work. They all work because they want to work and the sub-god helps manage the individual and specialist roles. So that gives you an insight what it looks like when you start to live on a more advanced world. Mm. Do you think that's possible here? Is, is there... You talk about future humans in, in the book. Is that future humans from a timeline that's progressed on from where we are now? Well, yes. Uh, when you go astrally traveling, you can find uh, future versions of humans, uh, which is kind of reassuring because we're living in an era where the climate uh, doom mongers reckon we might all die shortly if we make some horrible cocker. And to be fair, they could be right because there are many parallel versions of the Earth, so they're bound to be right on one of them. Uh, but fortunately, on some other parallel versions, we manage not to wipe ourselves out. We do manage to take uh, a more caring view of how to manage the Earth and look after it and do it because we want to rather than develop a taxation system that prohibits bad behaviour. It's looking after the place because it's a positive aspiration. And when you take that kind of line, you will find there are future humans alive who can look back at our rather more primitive era and they can help tell us how to reach their more developed future. It's rather like they can help their ancestors become more sensible and turn into more, shall we say, environmentally aware beings. <clears throat> It's good to know. So you talk about considerable help we get. Is, is there a, an effort from our higher friends or other races out there to assist humanity? You could, sometimes you can think there's also energies that just want to do the opposite here. There seems to be an energy that just wants to be more destructive. And there's obviously there's always the constructive side as well. So mm. um, I guess that's what duality is all about in some way that makes the game exciting. But what, what is the sort of help that humanity gets, do you think? Well, you've actually picked up the two sides of it. Uh, <laughs> and you very helpfully dis uh, described the negative side about how there are forces out there to create a sort of chaotic world. But it would be incorrect to assume that a chaotic world was a bad thing. What if uh, we'd come to a world that was designed to look chaotic? What if our adventure was to go and experience a chaotic world? Then someone's got to have the job of creating chaos. Someone's got to look after the role of being chaotic. It's like a movie. Someone's got to play the bad guys, otherwise there'd be nothing for the good guys to do. 
you know, like James Bond films, you know, you need the organization Spectre trying to mess up the world to give a 007 something to do and therefore look like a wonderful hero with lots of women <clears throat> who seem to fall into his arms. So there's that dynamic <laughs> playing out. So, so there's uh, that. Yeah. Yeah, go on. So with the, with the game players, though, you, you know, you, you, some people might think the, the players is just the humans pit against humans. Uh, but really, it's much more multidimensional. There's the, the game players mm -hmm. of all different levels. You know, the yes. good players are from, you know, all these different dimensions. Yes. The bad guys, you know, what you say the bad guys are, are the same uh, thing, you know. They're the same. Yeah. And back to us about the help we get and why we're doing it. Most of the people who will end up watching a little recording such as this have a, a lot of what you might call alien visitor in them. They are, by their nature, beings who've lived on more advanced worlds where the nice sub-gods already organized, and they've got all their friends on those other worlds, and they're coming to this world, and they have latent memories of more advanced worlds, which will make them feel that this world is rather sluggish, and it's described heavy, strange, heavy emotions here. Uh, you know, get used to the heaviness when you come here. It is a kind of weird world we're in. And if we get some help from our friends elsewhere, we have the option to both invent new things on this world and import ideas and observations from other worlds. We can bring in awareness of how things are done and drop it down into this world. And if you look at a lot of uh, major inventions that have happened in this world, it's often because something has quite literally been downloaded for example, the scientist whose name I forget, uh, who uh, developed the idea of quantum uh, physics, he said as if a light bulb suddenly went off in his head one day and suddenly understood something and a whole new understanding had just arrived. And we do have to ask the question, well, where did that come from? <laughs> did it spontaneously happen in his head or did he have an amazing download? And once you start doing more of this astral work, you'll begin to see there are a lot of beings who are trying to download stuff into human minds. So perhaps we can be open to what's already known and bring it into this level. I mean, wouldn't that be fun? It would be. So does that tie into what they call the, the hundred monkey, where they have a load of monkeys on a, an island that's completely isolated? And when you know, so many of them achieve a certain new skill even the ones that are isolated suddenly take it on, you know, which is kind of like a consciousness thing, isn't it? From their yeah. point of view. Um, Cause you know, I think it was around the time of Edison and uh, I think it was Tesla, they were mucking around with the electricity, wasn't they? The AC, DC current and stuff like that. I um, mean, scientists were kind of in different parts of the planet are competing with the same idea, like the, the same ideas mm. are sort of dropping in. Yes. Um, yeah. And it's the, the first person that can take it to market, I guess, and gets the credit. But it's all the other people that had the idea that wasn't able to take it to market. Well, or as you're picking out, AC and DC current, uh, just to explain to anyone who doesn't know the difference, uh, a DC current is what's called direct current, where electrons in our uh, illusion of the world, because you have atoms and electrons, here, electrons flow in a continuous form, and they do a little sort of loop around a circuit in a continuous form. That's direct current, DC. And AC, alternating current, uh, is one where electrons 
a shot back and forth. So they don't really do a complete kind of loop. There's lots of them doing back and forth. And by that back and forth means that back and forth system creates energy. And both these technologies were developed on Earth in the introduction of electrical systems as AC current and DC current, and both in their own way actually won out. And let's give you some example. All the electricity in our homes is operated using AC current. And mm -hmm. AC current operates all our light bulbs, it operates our electric heaters, it operates our cookers. And that one has taken over the world. At the same time as it was developed, there was DC current, which was thought to be wonderful for homes, but it turned out not quite as much. DC current with its continuous flow, not great for home, but brilliant for lots of other stuff. So by comparison, uh, all motor vehicles run on DC current systems. In fact, they generate their electricity as AC current and have to convert it back to DC because that runs the best in a motor vehicle. That's the best there. And similarly, all our mobile phones or cell phones, if you're in the United States, they like to run on DC current. So you actually have the two systems and they each one out. And you're so right. These systems are produced. They compete with each other, but they'll each find their own niches. They'll find where it works best. And if you leave people there, they will find ways and they'll learn how to develop it. So you're entirely right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, how that happens with uh, stuff coming in. So you, I mean, you've mentioned it before. People think, well, I've got a great idea. You know, but where did that idea come from and mm -hmm. uh it's like humanity is being pushed gently mm -hmm. into a into a better future mm -hmm. if, if only people listen and i think that's where meditation comes in to have that release the chatter from the mind mm -hmm. so you, that you can bring new awareness in or new ideas well let, let's also play with the experimental nature of what we're up to here on earth and i just want to keep this whole thing new idea um I was reading one day that the guy who invented Velcro, uh, his first chosen application turned out to be not very good. But by comparison, uh, when we talk about Velcro now, we find it ab absolutely everywhere. You do up your shoes with it, you do up bags. There's bits of your motor cars are held together with Velcro. If you think about it, Velcro with those sort of two materials one is little hooks and one's a sort of fluffy stuff you stick them together and they are all over the world uh, but they turned out to be rubbish for the first application uh, that they were tried on and that was the back of women's bras and at the back of women's bras we've got the two little hooks uh, which is designed that women should have a special skill set to even be able to put it on i don't know how women assemble their bras behind their back they seem to have the knack of it and then it's the challenging one for young males to try and get it off because they fight with that one and it's really tricky to operate <laughs> and young males will be bashed up but that was the first application of velcro we thought could it replace those hooks and make it easier for young males for in that example uh, but it turns out no, Velcro wasn't good for that. And we are in the same sort of experimental operation here. Humans are an experimental race. The experiment is being run of can you create the human design at a low level and then can you get it to become part of a self-aware mechanism? Can you get a human form to be able to see the real you at a very low dimension in amongst all sorts of compelling illusions. 
And this again is coming back into this whole subject of alien world. Your friends on alien world, can they help you on this world get your human experiment into a self-aware being? Can they get it to do that? I mean, what's progress like on making this happen? What kind of help do you feel you're getting? Well, I, I guess you feel, sometimes you feel um, inspired, don't you? You get an idea come in and then it just, it's roots in your mind, like you have to pursue it. That's how I feel sometimes. And, you know, in the past, I would have felt like that was my idea. But now I think, was that dropped in? <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, some minds, when they get ideas, they have to see it through to fruition. You know, you have to do it. Um, other people will probably just bat it away, um, depending on, the, on your mindset, I guess. And I think maybe ideas are dropped into the minds that they know that, that character is more likely to, to run with it. You know. So let's try this. What interesting ideas are you harboring? But going, do I run with it or don't run with it? Just try that. See what ideas oh. might have been dropped into your mind. <laughs> well, I can tell you what ideas I've had in the past, and I've and I've run with them. Um, but at the moment, I, I don't have any any new projects on the go. Um, but I've I have seen through quite a few in the past, and uh, spent quite a bit of money on them as well. And um, and the common theme that I had with them, and this this is funny enough, this came up in a in some reading I had that. I, um, I was told after that I'd done these things um, that I'm one of these people that bring an idea into, into the market, but I'm not necessarily the person that will earn money from it, but that idea will then inspire somebody else who has the means to take it further. And uh, it was just quite a nice idea to, to hear because obviously I hadn't earned much money from it and I'd plowed a lot of money into these ideas but after a, a certain amount of time, I pulled my energy away from it and realized that it was uh, more of a, you know, a money pit kind of thing. And, uh, mm. and maybe that is the case. Maybe some people, their role is just to bring an idea and not be the, the person takes the credit, but it maybe inspire somebody else that has the money and the resources to do it. Mm. So what you're talking about is if someone has an idea, what does it take to turn it into a, a really big project? <laughs> Mm. Uh, and, uh, just your job. There were, uh, I believe it was uh, two scientists who came up with the idea of nuclear bombs. Could you make fission nuclear bombs? It turned out to require, uh, between one thing and another, uh, about a third of a million American people to create the first nuclear bomb. So that was a, a small idea, but required a huge amount of resources. And talk about sort of money pit. Well, when the Americans were building their first nuclear bomb, uh, they were using about 10% of the country's electricity, trying to separate out nuclear materials. It was requiring so many resources, but it was a great group effort. Now, look at something by comparison that could be uh, more involved for us that doesn't involve blowing up the planet. And that is, how do you get human beings to collaborate together so that when a wonderful character like Ian produces an idea, he can be part of a collaborative organization that has enough resources and manpower to see it through to development. And then he can still be a part of the reward system for having grown it. 
And this is the challenge we're trying to do right now. How can you get human beings interacting using that sub-god energy so they can all collaborate on projects together and then all reap the benefits? So there isn't necessarily one bond, boss in the whole thing, but one big collaboration so these good ideas can build one on top of the other to make amazing resources happen and not blow up the planet. <laughs> so is that because we live in a sort of money system, don't we? You know, yes. uh, those with the money uh, tend to be the ones that are able to put something out and get all the people together, aren't they? Yeah. And uh, so I mean, you have to change the whole paradigm somehow away from a money yes. materialistic system. Well, money is okay. It's a means of getting stuff done. But it's often a means of getting people to do stuff when they feel they have to do stuff. They have to get up in the morning. They have to go to work. What if you can start to replace that with a system that people want to get up in the morning and want to do whatever they do because it's really fun? Yeah. Have that kind of system. And if you want to know what it looks like, go astrally traveling to some other world and go and have a look in at your friends and see what they're like. And this is one of the things you picked up in the book there. There are other worlds that look very human-like where they do that. And there are other worlds where people have similar societies, but they don't look human-like at all. Uh, so, for example, what do some of the greys look like? What's it like in their societies? How do yeah. they live? How do they breed? How do they interact with each other? And this is what we've been having a look at in the walk. <laughs> yeah, you talk about the, the greys with their, with their domes, which is like a big, almost like a safari park of uh, different yeah. species. Mm. I mean, do you want to talk about that? Yes, yeah, let's mention that one. In one of the places we got shown was a world of grey beings, as in we understand the greys. And they wanted to show off one of their achievements are wonders of the universe on earth. We talk about wonders of the world, like pyramids or some great statues. Well, the greys there had produced uh, what we call a sort of dome world where they got lots of different species to different worlds and managed to get them all interacting. So it's rather like a science fiction film when you visit it, you suddenly find lots of different species who are all able to interact and live together. And the trick is really, you've just got to get them in some similar atmospheres and make sure they're warm enough and good tempered enough they don't eat each other, quite literally. <laughs> or at least yeah. not eat each other in yeah. a way that's objectionable, because yeah. one thing does have to feed off another. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> literally put them together. And if you want to see a lot of the uh, different species that have been grown and developed in this world, go and visit the Greys uh, Safari Park domes, as you're describing them there. But it literally looks like a planet with these domed buildings. It's like mini worlds under a dome where the atmosphere has been regulated for that species type. If you want to do that, have a look in the book. It'll give you the coordinates of where to go. And you will find yourself, if you're astrally projecting, able to visit these places and start to hang out with some of the locals and see how they live. <laughs> well, so with the greys, have they got a, a certain um, job or function in the universe? Being, are they, I've heard things around that they're like the master genetic, geneticists mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I mean, what, what, what would you say the greys function is? 
in, in the universe? I'd say the function of that question you're asking uh, is to highlight our earthly misunderstanding. See, for a moment, let's just realize we're seeing humans as one species and greys as another species, and perhaps with their own particular agendas. And on Earth, if you had greys and humans living together, they'd bound to go to war and try and commit a sort of genocide and get rid of the other group. That would be the nature of what they do. Uh, but let's turn it around to see what it looks like from above. A human body or a grey are nothing more than a vehicle. They're nothing mm. more than players in the computer games. My little son, uh, instead of doing homework, he'd sit at home playing a little computer game worlds where you can pick your own character. And I notice some people don't even want to look human. They prefer to look like animals. So you see computer worlds with some people with animal heads and other people with human heads, but they're no more than characters. So when you're asking what's the agenda of these things, well, why not look into what you really are and what the real being you are is up to and realize that that can live in both the bodies of greys and humans or other life forms, depending on what you're up to. It's not one species trying to dominate another. <laughs> no, no, yeah. I guess, yeah, I guess what I was looking for there was uh, obviously humans, we've got very different body types, haven't we? So obviously they can do stuff we can't, can't do. Mm. Um, a lot of talk about the greys are involved in what they used to say, you know, abductions and stuff like that. Um, and some people talk about them, maybe the master genesis, uh, not gen uh, genetics, mastering genetics. So maybe the ones that can help create uh, or evolve species or create new species yes. or something like that. Have you thought, yes. sort of found that scenario to be true? Yeah, so there's definitely uh, a lot of uh, different species type have different capabilities. And an obvious one, that I think you mentioned earlier, but we didn't get a chance to talk about, is who makes a good astronaut? Uh, now, I don't mean astronaut in the earthly sense, where we're using uh, sort of generally hydrocarbon-powered fuel rockets to travel rather slowly to one place or another. Uh, but spacecraft that can get from literally one location to another in a huge jump. In Star Wars, they'd have played with the notion as going into hyperspace. You could go into hyperspace and go into one place or another. Uh, the reality can often be you go directly from one uh, bit of universe to another bit of universe, literally in a jump, and then reconstitute yourself in that new universe. And when you're doing that, that really throws around different life forms. And there are certain versions of human-like bodies and certain versions of gray-like bodies that have been adapted and grown to be good astronauts in this context, to so literally go from one place to another in a huge shot. And if we look on the cover of the real Alien Worlds book, I don't know if you're able to flash it up on the screen, yep. you'll see that there's a being there who looks a bit like a grasshopper, which has to be said, uh, that was one of the pioneering species who did a little sort of hello to the David body one night uh, and uh, got the real Alien Worlds book kicked off, or at least that stage of it kicked off. And when we got to visit their world, uh, they ended up explaining uh, on their world that their grasshopper bodies made crap astronauts, as things went. 
So they then had to develop a whole new species of body on the same planet that would make good astronauts. And if you read about it, it explains that little one and what they did and what they found. So they actually had to generate almost a separate species in order to do space travel in the way we would like to imagine and would have some parallels with our science fiction movies of jumping from one bit of universe to another. Are, they, are you referring to the little grey bodies at all? Uh, well, there are a number of, uh, of different bodies there, but yeah. just to mention yeah. different yeah. bodies, and you need different adaptation depending yeah. on what you're doing. And would they project their consciousness in? So would they project their consciousness into this new body, a bit like the movie Avatar? Well, that's a little bit different from being an astronaut, and let's just define this one. Because all human forms here are being operated by consciousnesses that can leave a human body, and it can, with a little practice, enter pretty much any other bodies, or in the word you're using, an avatar. <laughs> well, the movie Avatar, you see where they project into a different... You can project yeah. into a yeah. body, yeah. And, and thank you for that clarification. We, our consciousnesses that are powering our human bodies can leave and go and connect into pretty much any other form of body and land in it and experience being in it. You could do it on Earth in a small way. You could plug into what's it like to be a cat or a dog. Uh, but by comparison, if you are doing astral projection, you can then get to other planets and plug into other body forms. Mm. And then you can live out being them. You can see what it's like to being them. But where I've called the distinction with that and more astronaut people is that to recreate another body on another world and in an alien way uh, that's quite a different feat <laughs> to actually place another body alien to that other world on that world is quite tricky because vibrationally they tend not to be the same and what i mean by this is alien visitors to this world astronaut alien visitors who come here can't stay for too long because this planet has an inappropriate vibration them normally, so they can do a short visit and then they have to clear off. So there's the difference between the two. Consciousnesses can move everywhere, but physical vehicles or vessels, uh, they can travel from one place to another, uh, but they're really best on a more local environment that's native to them. That's what they're happier with. Yeah. So what's the, some of the other species that you've met, some of very unusual uh, places you've been to that are on a sort of a higher vibration um, that, you, that you, could, you can talk about? Well, uh, there's two ones I want to mention. Uh, and uh, one was the most peculiar one that I agonised about, should it even be in the book. That was called uh, a sort of big jelly being. And I wonder, what the hell is this doing in this book? It seemed like a being that could create its own world when you go and visit it. It is in, in entirety the being is a, its own world in itself worth looking at. And also the big jelly being I heard could create what would look like a sort of free floating planet in space. And I thought, what's that one about? Uh, but later on, one morning when getting up in the morning and seeing little news reports, I uh, was delighted to see a science report that uh, rogue planets had been spotted. Uh, and, hey, what's this? 
that's mm. exactly consistent with the big jelly being and how it could project itself into other universes and plug into them. And it would appear as what in our world looks like rogue planets. So it was rather nice to find that little interaction between the two. <laughs> so that, that, that was the first one. But the next one to realize is what are these worlds we're in at all? Let's start to pick up on it. So again, what was the second part of your question there? So I make sure I answered this one completely right. <sighs> well, it was about the different uh, unusual uh, beings that you've seen from a higher vibrational world. Yes. So the, the thing that actually was the most unusual surprise, and it was the very end of the book. So I was writing the book, and I had space for a last chapter. This was a surprise one. And I didn't know who was going to be in there. And then at the very end of having researched everyone else, I got, now you, I got told, now you're going to see the last people, the last chapter. And that was to see beings who were creating places like the Earth were on. And suddenly to see how there were what to us looks like advanced alien beings building the illusions of places like the earth. That was the shock, the surprise to see just how much places like the earth were engineered and designed and to see another alien looking being literally modeling it like playing with modeling clay. <laughs> that was yeah. a surprise. And th did these beings have any uh, inspiration from our reality, our Earth, for these beings that have been here before and decided to recreate this somewhere else? No, 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 no the point. No, they, oh, they, I see. How could they have been here before if they hadn't yet built it? <laughs> I mean that they may have reincarnated here in a human form and therefore yeah. in this other form they had this inspiration yes. to build a similar thing. Yes. They, uh, they would certainly come and play in their own creation like mm. any person generating a computer game will inevitably play their own game, if for no other reason than to test it out. But it was quite a surprise to actually see it being done. Uh, mm. And here's what happened in all of this. Here was one of the bigger insights that came out of it. Um, we are experiencing a universe where we like the idea that there's some godly character that created everything and in many ways that's correct indeed you find a sort of heavenly being or one of us a super consciousness or, or the ultimate god that's creating everything yes it is but it does it in a strange way it actually gets beings at progressively lower levels to create all the details so it seems to start off with a curiosity about what it is and then this starts generating beings, levels going down and down and down, who start actualizing the whole exercise of how do we look back and see what we really are. So these human forms we're experiencing, they are examples of that. So you end up with a universe where the beings working through the levels start creating not only what they're at, but further levels below. So it was quite a surprise to see how the universe we're in is actually able to invent itself and create new life forms. 
Yeah. So, so, so the, basically, the, the consciousness is really, uh, a, it's, it's a very, you can't even say the word simple, but it's just this is thing um, that doesn't, it, it needs almost like to have uh, a different, something that has to be something completely different to itself, a different opposite to itself mm. to, to take on the charge of doing it. I mean, this be, I can't remember if it was your book or someone else mentioned, it's almost like the, this, creative false god or whatever it's almost like a baby in a sense yes and it, yes. yeah it needs other things outside to start building oh. the mechanisms yeah. so if, if you do look at the real you it doesn't seem to be like an old beardy man uh, which is or this is our male culture some people think about it's a woman or sort of motherly being and it's an old wise being uh, but when you start to look at it, it's just as valid, you'll find, that it's quite a young, playful thing. Not quite a helpless baby, uh, but quite a sort of, almost a sort of young, spirited, playful being that wants to try stuff out and is open to any wacky experiment, however stupid it might look at the outset. <laughs> It's amazing, isn't it? And another, I mean, this spawns another question. Cause I've been many times this has been on this thread. Um, obviously, on a physical level, we're talking about all these different beings, all the way up to the great, you know, consciousness or whatever the god, um, all assisting in this whole construction mm -hmm. of our realities. Um, but that must happen on a. You've got the life between life element, you know, the spirit bit when you're mm -hmm. in between the state yeah. of a life form. And then you have this also happening on the, the physical state at various different levels as well. And you mm -hmm. could say that the highest level of physical is almost very similar to a, a mm -hmm. spiritual in between life state, too. But you, this well, is kind of two verticals. Yes, there are verticals. And I think it's important to mention, uh, by the way, when you go traveling doing this, we often set off with the mindset that we're primitive humans and we're trying to ascend to some higher and higher level. That might sort of be true. We um, also find an opposite dynamic, uh, which also seems to have a validity, and that is uh, we are quite light, bright beings that are experimenting with how low can we go and is it worth it? Do we get anything out of it? And you find that there are both dynamics. So there are very light levels where the real you throws away its human form, like a very light astral projection. It just strips off its humanness and turns into a light fluffy being. And from that level, it says, oh, can I be next? Where would I like to go? Where are my friends going? Let's go together as a little family or group. That'll be more fun. And it can try those things and then go down to very low levels and put itself back into a low-level body and create a low-level vehicle in which it can completely forget that it even wanted to be here and even find it objectionable that it's actually alive on Earth and hoping it will all mm. end soon. <laughs> <laughs> so you talk about friends uh, from other places. Would you say it's also true that we have the, the, the people around us, our loved ones, our friends, our enemies even, mm -hmm. uh, yes. are souls that we've incarnated with many many times and maybe yeah. from a similar soul origin or journey across mm -hmm. this huge multiverse of reality this this we all inherently know and when we start looking at other lifetimes mm -hmm. you'll begin to see the patterns of the same being showing up but in different bodies 
in mm. different vessels. So we're often acting out different roles. You know, you could be husband and wife in one lifetime and somewhere else it could be the equivalent of brother and sister or two friends who just so happen to have got together. So yeah. the thought on how we could wrap this up today, yeah. it's just a very simple one and a defining mm. thing, and that is we're often seeing ourselves here on Earth as a little bit on isolation. You produce the wonderful example of what happens if you put 100 chimpanzees on an island. Well, we are a bit in that scenario, what happens when you put a whole load of humans on Earth and you make them forget everything else. What will they do next? And the answer uh, seems to be, in our cases, we'll experience a latent desire to break out of that limitation. And our latent desire to break out will have us go off and start exploring the greater universe, which at the moment we can't do to any great extent with uh, hydrocarbon-powered space rockets, but we can do with our astral skills and take our consciousness on little astral trips and start to find out the bigger picture. So the book, Real or Alien Worlds, a brief encyclopedia thereof, <laughs> it covers a snapshot of places you can visit. And if you do go and visit them, it's like encouraging you to go and explore for yourself and bring back more research. And if anyone wants to email me with a suggestion on where else we should visit for a further edition of the book, we're open to that because this is how we build it up, suggestions and experiments, build up a bigger telephone directory of fun places to visit. That's fantastic. And then, so people want to find out more, they can visit your website. Yeah. That's uh, thegreatsimulates.com. Yeah. You have courses or one-to-one sessions you can offer people to, yeah. to train with you too. Yes. Yeah. We teach people how to do this for themselves because by pe- teaching different human bodies with the same skills that it enables the real you that's powering your human body to have a much more fun and dynamic human experience will teach you to do it. it's a bit like flying lessons or someone a few weeks ago put it he was shocked it was like monday morning he booked it in for nine o'clock do astral projection and in a matter of fact way an hour later he's going oh my god yeah am i out there my consciousness mm. is out there it was visiting somewhere else. He was really mm. thrilled. He's like, you put it in the diary and it all happened. Yeah, and also some people can feel the pressure of it's not working. You said, I think, um, if you're a younger person, maybe in your 20s, you can maybe expect something after a solid 10 hours of uh, quality practicing. And if you're a bit older, it's, uh, it can take a little bit longer. Well, anyone listening to this recording will be able to do it. But if you're in a younger body, you might find it a little bit quicker to learn. And there's some reasons we could get into another recording quite why that is. But just to say, if you've got this far and you're connecting to these sorts of videos and the other similar ones, you can do it. Even if you're not being taught by this David character, you can do it. You will get to do it somehow. So don't give up. Keep trying. You will find how to do it. This is part of the encouragement and the inspiration to just achieve it, you know, wake up, illuminate the body you're in. <sighs> well, that's wonderful. That's a brilliant message to end the show with, David. And I, I hope people do get in contact with you and visit your website at thegreatsimulators.com. And, um, and yeah. if you've got any questions, just, yeah, feel free. Just Go on, David. Out. Yeah. So if it's not shown on a link, it's G-R-E-A-T 
S-I-M-U-L-A-T-O-R.com. And you can find me there. Um, okay. Hope to look forward to interacting with you. Okay. Thank Bye-bye. you very much, David. <laughs> Have a good day. Thank you.